Hi, this is Chris Kipp, lead pastor of Renaissance Church in Richmond, Texas. Thank you for streaming or downloading this podcast today. I hope this resource blesses you. If you haven't joined us at a worship gathering or in a house church yet, we want you to come. You can find all that information and more at rin-church.org. I pray that you are encouraged today by the proclamation of God's word. start with a little bit of a confession, okay? Fourteen and a half years ago, I was in a poker game. Now, that's not the confession because if you're, if you're new to, uh, to Renaissance, if you're new to non-denominational church, if you're new to Acts 29, it's fair game for the pastor to start a sermon with, so I was in a poker game, all right? I was in a poker game with guys from my small group at my church. It was all on the up and up. I, I donated $5 to the winner of that night, okay? It was a charitable contribution. And uh, we um, had this, you know, poker night and this guy who's, it's at his house, his name's Jesse Brown, he's a friend of mine. And he looks at me and he says, are you gonna marry that girl or what? I mean, come on. Now guys, especially at a poker game, your friend calls you out. I felt about like that big because I'd been dating Casey for about three years. And in that three years, we had broken up three times. And I'm feeling like really, really bad until he tells me his story of how his, his father-in-law has to sit him down and say, are you going to marry my daughter or what? Now, I think he felt a little bit smaller than I felt in that moment. But what had happened was it was one part immaturity on my part. It was also one part um, really wanting God's will and like being kind of afraid, like, am I going to miss God's will? One part, my personality. But also what was happening is that I had been evangelized and discipled into pop culture romanticism that tells you to marry for love, but it doesn't tell you what that looks like, what that feels like. And what had happened is that I was divided inside. Now, this is not a sermon about marriage and dating and relationships. This is a sermon about being divided. There's a term in the Bible, and the term is double-minded. And James tells us that when we pray and we ask for things, but we don't believe that God will answer, that we're double-minded. And he says that we are unstable in all of our ways. What double-mindedness does, what it did to me, is that it brought a lot of confusion, a lot of um, turmoil, a lot of pain for me and also for Casey. You can imagine <laughs> God in his sovereign goodness led me to the light to see that I needed to marry this amazing woman. I'm so glad that he did but he had to deal with some double-mindedness. And what I think happens for us is in, in the midst of life, and especially in our culture, it's very easy to have one foot in and one foot out, especially when it comes to things like God and Jesus and faith in the body of Christ. And so I wanna talk about dividedness, double-mindedness, and I believe all of us 
either have or will deal with being divided inside. So what we're going to look at today is from the the book of Acts. It's Acts chapter 19. If you want to start turning there, this is the last sermon in a series uh, called Wildfire. We've been looking at uh, just moments in the early church that I think are formative for us as a new church. And this one, I think, is especially formative. It's, It's an amazing story, and it's taking place in Ephesus. Paul's on his third missionary journey, and it's not like he's just hopping in, hopping out. He's been here for over two years. He's preaching, he's teaching, and this town was like the the, the New York City of Asia Minor. Pliny, who was a contemporary author, a Roman author of this time period, says that it was the light of Asia. So this was a very prominent place. It was multicultural. There was a large Jewish population. There was the the, the temple of the Greek goddess Artemis that's going to get Paul in trouble later in the chapter. There, There was magic being practiced. It was basically a pluralistic society just like where you and I live today. A big city with lots of different beliefs and lots of opportunities for people to have one foot in and one foot out. So, here we are in Acts chapter 19, and we're going to start in verse 11. And here's what's happening. It says, God was performing extraordinary miracles by Paul's hands, so that even face cloths or aprons that had touched his skin were brought to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Verse 13 Now some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists also attempted to pronounce the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I command you by the Jesus that Paul preaches. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish high priest, were doing this. The evil spirit answered them, I know Jesus and I recognize Paul, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them, overpowered them all, and prevailed against them so that they ran out of that house naked and wounded. When this became known to everyone who lived in Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, they became afraid. And the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high esteem. Verse 18, and many who had become believers came confessing and disclosing their practices. While many of those who had practiced magic collected their books and burned them in front of everyone. So they calculated their value and found it to be 50,000 pieces of silver. In this way, the word of the Lord flourished and prevailed. This is the word of the Lord. So here we have this kind of unusual, extraordinary story or like series of stories. And just think about this. Luke is the physician. He's the one who's writing this book for us. He's, he's giving us an account. And he puts these stories kind of back to back. The first story is extraordinary miracles done by Paul's hands. And even these cloths, faith cloths that had touched him were, were given to people who were sick. And they were healed or, or evil spirits would come out of them. Right, that's unusual. Now, some of you are picturing like a televangelist on TV. It's like, man, if you give me $1,000, I've got this face cloth. Man, I've been praying over this thing. I'm going to send it to your house, right? And that's not what's happening here. 
Paul is in Ephesus and he's in a, the hall of Tyrannus daily and he's contending for the gospel. He's, he's dialoguing. He's, he's probably debating with the scholars of that town. And I'm just imagining like a hot Ephesian day and he's sweating and, and he grabs a cloth and he's wiping his face and somebody nearby grabs it and it's like, oh, this is, he wiped his face, right? And they're giving it to sick people and somehow God in his grace used the faith of that sick person who touched that thing and they were healed. That's, it's extraordinary, extraordinary. That's unusual, right? But Luke says also at the same time, Jewish exorcists are trying to cast these evil spirits out of people and they're in the, in the spirit of best practices. They're like, hey, when Paul said the name of Jesus, like, did you see what happened? They're like, yeah, let's, let's try that. And so they go and, and they try Paul's method in the name of Jesus that Paul preaches, right? And, and what happens is quite hilarious because here this guy who's got this demonic spirit, it, it, turns to him, right, freak out, the spirit talks to him and says, look, hey, Jesus I know, Paul I recognize, but who are you guys? And basically hands their bottoms to him and they run out of there naked and wounded. I think it's interesting that the face cloth of the man who was truly seeking Jesus has more power than people who parrot the formulas, you get that? There's more power in the sweat cloth than in these seven sons of Sceva parroting the formula. They try Paul's formula, but they don't have Paul's faith. And I think what this teaches us is that the name of Christ isn't a magic incantation, right? I mean, I think that maybe in church culture, we're like, you know, name of Jesus, name of Jesus. Oh, it's the name. And, and that's true. It is the name of Jesus. But the name of Jesus being parroted apart from faith in Jesus is not powerful. The reason is in John 15, when, when Jesus is talking to his disciples and he says, look, abide in me and I will abide in you. Apart from me, you can do nothing but if you remain in me, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. See, the reason is that it is through faith in which the presence of Jesus comes into our life. And it's no longer just the name, the name of that preacher that he preaches in, the, the, not the name of Jesus that my spouse believes in, or not the name of Jesus that, you know, my parents taught me about. It's, it's personal. He has faith, and there's power in the presence of God within Paul. And so we have this unusual, extraordinary story, but that's not really what caught my attention this week. What caught my attention was that fear comes upon all the people. That word fear, if you were to look up the Greek, it's the word phobos. It's where we get the term phobia. And I don't know if you have a phobia. Some of you might be scared of spiders or like scared of cockroaches. Like if you're in Houston, you see a cockroach and you freak out, right? You scream like a girl and you just run out of the room, right? No, I, I have a fear of heights. 
And, and years ago, uh, Casey and I went to New York City with some friends, and they walked us to the Empire State Building. We went up to the top of that thing. And let me tell you, I, like, couldn't go to the edge. Like, I'm so scared of heights that I, I like, I look, and I, I have to hold on to something, right? I look, and then I'm, like, immediately I'm back, right? That, that was enough for me. I, I'm so scared of heights that when I walk in downtown Houston and I'm standing next to tall buildings, like it freaks me out. Like I don't like that, right? I don't know why that is, but that's my phobia. And that word would mean like terror, like, like dread. You're filled with dread. And here's what I want you to ponder this morning is why did fear, dread, terror come upon the people? Unusual stories, extraordinary miracles. These guys get beat up by a demon-possessed man. And then fear comes upon them. Why did fear come upon the church? I think it's a, it's a good question because it's, it sort of makes us think deeply about what's happening here. And I think there's two reasons the first reason is that I think they realize, like, this is real. Like, this is real. Now, if you're in a pluralistic society like ours, where the, the undercurrent is kind of like this humanistic idea, it's sort of like God is like an add-on. He's a mod. He's an upgrade, and you can accessorize your life with a certain religion as long as you don't really believe that it's actually true. Or, or that you believe that it's just enough, but it's not like you can still interact with all these other people and it's not a problem, right? It's, it's like God is just an add-on. And so they, they have this moment where I think they see the reality of the spiritual realm and they're like, oh, this is, this is real. I, I remember um, in high school, I, had, I was a brand new believer and I got invited uh, through the church to this Bible study. It was called Walk Through the Bible. And I knew, like, the cross and the resurrection and, you know, you know faith and salvation and eternal life and love, joy, peace, patience. I, and, like, I knew all the good things. And I got to this Bible study, and they start walking through the whole Bible, and they get to, like, the prophet's. And they, start, they look at all the, like, the end times prophecy and like all the spiritual realm of this demonic stuff that's happening. And I'm like, what? It's like that, the record, like, you know, like, oh my, what? And I, I, I had a, this is real revelation. You see, the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, paints two fundamental spiritual realities. The first is that there is an eternal God who exists in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that he has always existed. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He's the King of Kings, and he's the Lord of Lords, and he's the uncreated creator of all things, which includes us, but it also includes a whole host of heavenly beings, various kinds of angels that we read about all through the Bible. It's the reality of good. He's good. The second fundamental reality is that there is a devil. From Genesis 3, the serpent, all the way to the beast at the end of the book, in God's triumph at the end, there is an enemy, an adversary. 
Jesus told his disciples, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. And there is a whole host of demonic things that are all associated with him. And then there's no other place where like, and there's this other God or this other set of gods over here. It's like that does not exist here. It is God, good. It is devil. It is evil. And what's really offensive to our Western pluralistic years is to hear that every other belief system that is not founded on Jesus is empowered by evil. That's, that's, that's so narrow, right? So narrow. Jesus told his disciples, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. And the mantra of pluralism is, look, there's one proverbial mountain, and you're coming up over on that side. Bless you guys. You're coming up over there. Bless you guys. That works for you. Praise God. We're coming up the Jesus way. And y'all come from there, and y'all come from there, and that's all good and well. And into all of that, the Bible says something very, very different. That there's one way, and it is in Jesus. And that every other belief system is false and empowered by evil. It hurts the pluralistic ear. It offends, but it's true. Now, if I were to tell you, hey, FYI, newsflash, there are a few serial killers on the loose in your neighborhood. Just want you to be aware. What are you going to do, right? What you're probably going to do is you're going to lock every door and window in your home. Am I right? Like, you're going to go home and you're like, hey, we're shutting the garage. We're making sure everything's locked because we know someone is on the loose, but I think that somehow we, we kind of fall into this, this kind of, I don't know, dismal understanding of reality. And it's like it's so easy for us to keep a few doors open. And we have one foot in and we have one foot out. So we have this basic fundamental reality that this is real. And this church has a revelation of that. And they are filled with fear and dread. There's a healthy fear of knowing like this stuff is real. Like I, if that's evil and, that, and that's going to bring like death and destruction in my life, guess what? I don't want to have anything to do with that. Like that's a healthy fear. But the second thing that I think they become aware of is this, is that God is holy. They're filled with terror and dread at the holiness of God. That word holy, I just looked it up in, in the Merriam-Webster uh, dictionary. It says, exalted or worthy of, get this, complete devotion as one perfect in goodness and righteousness. Meaning this, undivided devotion. In this church, they have the, this is real and God is holy. That he is 
pure, that he's righteous, that we can't fathom the purity and the righteousness and the power of God. I was thinking of a story this week in the Old Testament and, and the, the Ark of the Covenant has been taken away into a, a Philistine territory and David's gonna bring it back and he's like, you know, he's feeling good, he's the hero and so he, he, he disregards all the Old Testament like um, um, instructions of how to get this thing back and he just gets a cart and some dudes and they're gonna pull it back and the teeters on the car and one guy sticks his hand out because he's worried that this, this amazing um, manifest presence of God, Ark of the Covenant thing is gonna fall over, right? From a good heart, he leans over and he steadies it and he immediately dies. Why? It was holy. So our God is holy. And in this reality of like, oh my gosh, this is real, and, and God is holy, what happens next is revival. Like revival breaks out. I, I found some quotes this week on revival. I just want to read these to you because I, I thought they were really helpful. This is from J.I. Packer, author of Knowing God. He says, revival is the visitation of God which brings life to Christians who have been sleeping and restores a deep sense of God's near presence and holiness. Then springs a vivid sense of sin and a profound exercise of heart in repentance, praise, and love with an evangelistic outflow. Henry Blackaby wrote a series called um, Experiencing God, and he writes this about revival. He says, revival is when God's people return to God, and God returns to them, and everyone sees the difference. I just want you to notice that revival was when God's people returned to God. Lastly, Anne Graham Lotz, she's the daughter of Billy Graham, she wrote this, revival begins when you draw a circle around yourself and make sure everything in that circle is right with God. What happens here is that revival breaks out. I mean, check this out in verse 18. If you go back and read this with me, it says, many who had become believers. Okay, wait, 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 no, no. Not just the like, people that don't know God. No, it's the people who had become believers. Christians came confessing and disclosing their practices. Verse 19, while many of those who had practiced magic collected their books and burned them in front of everyone. <laughs> it's crazy that the people of God are brought back into the rightness of God as they have the revelation of this is real and God is holy. And what happens, the first thing that happens in this revival is what we call conviction. These people experience conviction. That word means that they are convinced, like deeply convinced. They're convinced about the righteousness of God and the reality of God. And they're convinced about the state of their own hearts. Bill Johnson, he um, describes conviction this way. I thought it was a great definition. He says, it's a deep desire to be right with God. When we're convicted, we have this deep desire to be right with him. 
Jesus said that it was a work of the Spirit. In John 16, uh, verses 8 through 11, he says, when he comes, talking about the Spirit, he will convict the world about sin, righteousness, and judgment, about sin because they do not believe in me, about righteousness because I'm going to the Father and you will no, no longer see me, and about judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. It is a work of the Spirit. And here's what I want to say to you. If you deeply desire to be right with God, if there's something in you that hears this and is like, I want that. I want to tell you this. That is God's work inside of you. That is evidence that the Spirit of God is working in you. And I think you need to thank him. Like, thank you for being present with me. So they, they experience this conviction. It's a deep desire to be right with God. And then that leads them to this second thing, which I think it leads us to is confession. Right? They came confessing and disclosing their practices. Confession literally means that we are agreeing with God about our sin. It's saying, look, hey, you said that was wrong, and I thought I was smarter than you, and so I did it anyway, and now I'm realizing that really was wrong. I agree with you, God. This is sin. It agrees that his truth really is true and that our sin really is sin. And James, the brother of Jesus, he tells us this in James 5.16. He says, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that, get this, you may be healed. Isn't that good? The prayer of a righteous person is very powerful in its effect. That when the conviction comes and it leads us to confession to say, I was wrong. Like, I did that. And we say it to one another. That there was healing. There, there's a word in here. It says they came disclosing their practices. And I just want to say that you can't disclose something that's not hidden. Which means that in the church, among the believers, there were a lot of hidden things going on. And I think that's true in every church and every place and every time. There's hidden things that go on in our lives. And when the move of God comes and we're convicted and we move to confession, we disclose what is hidden. And here's what happens. I just want to tell you this because I've, I've done it and I've experienced it, is that when you start feeling convicted and then you start confessing and then you think oh, I should tell somebody and you go to tell somebody, how it normally happens is you say, well, you know, I just want to tell you something. Uh, the other day I was, uh, I was by myself and I, I, mean, I guess it was wrong. I mean, I think, I think it, you know, it's probably wrong. And what I did is, and so what you start doing is you start kind of hedging a little bit and you say things like, it was, prob it was probably wrong. I, 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 I think it was wrong. And we're kind of confessing, but we're kind of not. <laughs> Confession means to agree with God about our sins. And so this church experiences conviction and confession and then that leads them to what it leads us to in verse 19 
they have a good old book burning. Isn't that crazy? So 10,000 pieces of silver in our currency today would be about $6 million. Imagine that. I don't know if you have a collection of anything in your house worth $6 million. I kind of doubt it, right? This was not just like a little bit of things happening in the church. This was like a lot of people in the church had secret things going on. And they brought those magic books together and it was $6 million worth. And they experienced repentance. Repent literally means to change your mind about something. It's to turn. It's like I was going this way and then I realized like this is wrong and now I'm going this way. It's turning back to God and it's turning away from that thing. When my friend asks me, are you going to marry this girl or what? What he's doing is he's putting a fork in the road. Right? And as human beings, we don't like forks in the road because we like to keep one foot in and one foot out and we need someone to come along and say what's it going to be and I had to change my direction and here's what happens they burned six million dollars worth of magic books because they were actually worthless they were worthless it was empowered by darkness. And they realize it and they say, this isn't worth $6 million. This is worth literally nothing. And what they do is they cut off their opportunity to go back. They don't have the book anymore. I burned it. <laughs> I'm not going back there. They come to the fork in the road and they change their mind. They turn back to the Father. They repent and my friends, repentance is a gift from God. It is good. Because in repentance, divided people become wholehearted followers. How do we deal with division within us? How do we deal with one foot in and one foot out? We deal with it by having a revelation of the reality that this is real and God is holy. And this brings me to a fork in the road, which calls me to confess and to repent. And in repentance, the beautiful thing is that we're no longer divided. Oh, being single-minded, being fully devoted is the most incredible experience of being a believer in Christ. It unlocks the joy. It unlocks the peace. It unlocks all the things that you've been trying to seek and to find. But it will not happen when we are divided. So, I want to challenge you this morning to turn, to repent. Are, are you divided? Right. Is, has, have you been evangelized and discipled into the pluralism of our day in such a way that, that you're just like literally one foot in and one foot out? Are there secret things happening that need to come into the light? And here's the gospel for you today. Jesus withheld nothing when he gave himself for you. 
It wasn't one foot in and one foot out. It wasn't, I'm kind of going to the cross, but I'm kind of not. He gave himself wholly, fully, completely, taking all the wrath of God for all of our sinful actions and attitudes. He took it upon himself wholly and really died and then really rose again for you. Will you give yourself wholly to him? So let's be people who experience the conviction of God, who see revival, amen? I want to see that. I want to see revival. I want to see a move of God, but I think it's going to start with us. Let's be a people who confess, who bring things into the light. And let's be a people who repent and become wholehearted so that in this way, the word of the Lord might flourish and prevail. Let's pray together. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Renaissance Church Sermon Podcast. To contact us or find out more information, visit rin-church.org. 